Amen. Well, welcome to The Grove, guys. My name is Caleb Brazier, and I am one of the pastors here at The Grove, um, and we are continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're nearing the end. We're getting uh, into the last chapter here today. Next week will be our final week in 2 Corinthians. And one of the things that marks us here at the church is we're expository teachers. And what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. So in 2 Corinthians, we have this second letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, um, where Paul is continuing to address concerns that he has of what's happening in this church in Corinth. And in particular, his number one concern in this church is this group, which he has dubbed these super apostles, these group of men that have come into the church and claimed to have the ministry figured out and trying to discredit Paul. And they're saying, look at our ministry. It's flashy. We make a lot of money. Our lives are going well. We are impressive. And they point to Paul and go, look how massively unimpressive Paul is. There's no way that his ministry is legitimate. And they're trying to discredit them. And they're teaching things opposed to what the gospel teaches. And Paul's worried about the church because they're beginning to fall into it some. So, so much of the letter in 2 Corinthians is holding out a picture of what true Christian ministry looks like. And then here in these final chapters, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, Paul is defending his apostolic ministry and his apostolic authority. This is what he's been doing these past few chapters. And he will now turn here in the section today in chapters 12 and 13 and begin to go on the offensive. He's been defending some of the things that these super apostles have brought against him. And now he will go on the offensive and say, here is what true apostolic ministry looks like. Here's true marks of an apostle. And so for us, by extension, Paul is not just saying, here's what apostolic ministry looks like, but he also gives us marks of what an apostolic church should look like. And that's where we'll see, for us, the instruction for Paul, the shape of his ministry, should be the shape of the ministry of this church as we follow in his footsteps. We'll be in chapter 12, uh, verse 11, through chapter 13, verse 4. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. We'll be in chapter 12, verse 11, on to chapter 13, verse 4. Paul writes this. He says, I have been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, the signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you since I'm not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? And didn't he walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? 
Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ. And everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want. And you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence. And I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. So as we read through it, it's, I mean, it's kind of a difficult text, right? It's kind of confusing. What's Paul getting at here? What's he dealing with? And how in the world do we take it and apply it to us today? Well, again, I think here Paul is going on the offensive to say this is what the mark and shape and flavor of true Christian ministry True apostolic ministry should look like. And so for us, it should be the shape and the ministry of our church as well. So the three things I want us to look at here this afternoon is we will see that an apostolic church believes an authenticated message. Second, an apostolic church battles a sinful disposition. And third, an apostolic church displays a Christ-like love. I think this is what Paul is putting forward for them and then for us as well. An apostolic church believes an authenticated message. We'll see that in verses 11 and 12. Second, an apostolic church battles a sinful disposition. We'll skip a few verses, go down to verse 20, all the way to 13, 4. Then finally, an apostolic church displays a Christ-like love. Then we'll come back to verses 13 and 19. All that will make sense as we go back through it. I realize I just confused myself, so let's just dive into the text. Uh, chapter 12. Verse 11, Paul says an apostolic church believes an authenticated message. This is where he comes at the beginning in verse 11 and says, Guys, listen, you forced this on me to have to prove and boast in what it is I'm doing and in this ministry. Well, how can you be confident in the ministry that I have? And what's the thing that Paul points to, right? He labels these super apostles again. And then in verse 12, he says, listen, but they didn't have the authentication that apostles have. And he goes to verse 12, he says that the signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you. Well, what were those signs? Well, they included signs and wonders and miracles. Paul says, when I came to you in the ministry, in this message of the gospel, as we were there, there were these signs and wonders and miracles that I was performing. It was a, an authentication of the message that I was sharing. Super apostles didn't have that. They didn't have this apostolic ministry that was authenticated by God with the power to be able to do these supernatural things. And this was true not just for Paul. We see this in the New Testament. Even in Jesus' life, in John 5, Jesus was questioned about his ministry. And so Jesus takes this principle from the Old Testament that two or three witnesses are needed. Paul quotes it in chapter 13. 
And Jesus calls three witnesses to the stand to authenticate his ministry. He brings up John the Baptist, not literally to a stand, but theoretically. He brings him up. He says, John the Baptist witnessed to my ministry. Not just John the Baptist, but the entire scripture. Secondly, he says, have testified and are a witness to my ministry. They've been bearing witness about me. And then third, Jesus brings up as a testimony and authentication of his ministry in John 5, 36. He says, I have a greater testimony than John the Baptist because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says these works, these miracles, these wonders and signs, they are testifying to the truth of the message that I'm proclaiming. They are proof. Proof is in the pudding. Later in Peter's famous sermon in the Sermon of Pentecost in Acts 2, he says this in verse 22, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God. He was verified to you by God. How? With miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. Again, in Peter's sermon, he's saying Jesus' ministry was attested to and authenticated through the signs and wonders and miracles that he did. Later in Acts 14, talking about Paul and Barnabas in their ministry, Luke writes this, says that they stayed there a long time, talking about Paul and Barnabas, and they spoke boldly for the Lord who testified to the message of his grace. How? How did God testify and authenticate that message of grace that they had? By enabling them to do signs and wonders. And so here Paul is saying, hey, when I came to your city, it was truly apostolic because of the authentication that I had through the power to be able to do this. Right? I, I was uh, looking back and thinking about which uh, Marvel movie to use as an illustration. There are just so many good ones. And landed on Captain Marvel. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's one of the newer ones in which there was um, this woman who grew up on Earth. Then a plane exploded and power within the Tesseract, which was powered by an Infidious Stone, infused into her and an alien race known as the Kree abducted her and began to manipulate her before she was then cast back down to Earth to figure out who she really was and find out that there was this power within her. And that's the beginning of this story. If, you've, if you're with me so far, great. If you're not, which I can tell most of you are not, that's fine because here's the point. There came a point where she was then confronted by this special agent, Nick Fury, a.k.a. Samuel L. Jackson. And in this confrontation at the beginning, Nick Fury's trying to figure out, are you really who you say you are, or are you this other alien race that's a shapeshifter known as the Kree? This is a huge distinction. Samuel L. Jackson needs to find out, are you truly who you say you are? And so he asked her, how can I be confident about who you say you are? And she doesn't say anything. She just lifts up her fist and shoots a photon blast and explodes a jukebox. So you may say, what's a photon blast? It's a powerful blast that we, we won't even get into the physics of it here today. But what it did in that moment, Nick Fury had no concern about whether or not she was lying because of the power that was demonstrated through her authenticated the claims that she was making. Friends, this is what happens in the New Testament with these signs and wonders and miracles. As you look through the gospel of Acts, and the gospel is spreading through the book of Acts, that as they're proclaiming this message, understand the audacity of the gospel when it was first heard in the Middle East. 
Here is this claim that a man has been born who is God himself, who lived a perfect life and has fulfilled the entire law and the prophets and has established now a new covenant. The old covenant has been fulfilled. And now this news of God dwelling with us is going to break through the walls of Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. If you're a first century Israelite and you hear that, you're going to raise your eyebrow and go, how can I be certain that this is true? Well, what we see throughout the Acts, uh, throughout the book of Acts, is that it was accompanied by and authenticated by these signs and wonders and miracles not just for the sake of doing them, but to authenticate the message. And Paul says, hey, church, I came to you and did the exact same thing. These super apostles didn't have this authentication. They weren't attested by the power of God. But I was. And friends, this message of grace that was authenticated by God's power through them is the same message of grace that has been passed down for 2,000 years that we believe today. There is no new message. There is no new teaching that we have discovered. We are simply carrying on what they proclaim. Why? Because we see it was authenticated and given by God himself. And so if you're, if you're here and you're skeptical about faith, if you're not sure about Christianity, if you're kind of raising your eyebrow going, is this thing real? Right? I know that there are questions that we have. There's talking snakes and worldwide floods and a man who was raised to life again, who's still not dead. I understand that. But understand every worldview has questions it has to answer. And so if you're here and you're wondering, is this thing for real? Let me just invite you to stay here. Keep asking the questions. Keep pressing into it. Come talk to me because what we see here is that we do not have a faith that calls us just bury our heads in the sand, throw reason out the window. But what we have is a message that has been authenticated Throughout centuries, the last two millennia, that was primarily authenticated through the greatest miracle of Jesus Christ walking out of his grave. For us to raise our eyebrows and go, goodness, if that's the power that he has, then we should listen to what it is that he says. Friends, without an empty tomb, we would have an empty claim. But instead, we have a Savior who is alive. And his message of grace was given to the apostles to establish apostolic churches and for the message to be passed down throughout generations and for us now to guard that good deposit. And so we see an apostolic church believes this authenticated message. Secondly, we see an apostolic church battles a sinful disposition. We'll skip verses 13 through 19 and come back to them at the end. We'll jump down to verse 20. You hear Paul concerned about the state of the church. He's worried about how they're going to be doing, right? If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that the church in Corinth was a mess. They had a whole host of issues. They were really up and down with Paul. Now, Paul came and visited one time and had to confront them with some of these issues, and they then turned Paul away. This was Paul's painful visit that he had referenced in this book. So they had painful visits, tearful letters, confrontation. And Paul's now worried, saying, listen, I'm glad that we are reconciled, but I'm worried if I come back, nothing's going to change, and you guys are going to still be living in sin. And so he says, I fear, verse 20, that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what I want. 
Goodness, there might be quarreling and jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence. And I will grieve for many who sinned before and now have not repented of moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practice. Then in chapter 13, he says, listen, if I come and that's the case, I'm not going to be lenient. God is serious about sin, and so we should be serious about sin. And if there is still unrepentance, then it will have to be dealt with. And he talks about with the church in Corinth this practice of church discipline. Here, referenced it early in chapter 2, and again, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we can't get into that now because Paul doesn't get into it too much. But if you have questions about that, you can go and listen to the sermon from 2 Corinthians 2, where we dived into it in, I think, November 19th, 2000, November 10th, 2019. We want more in-depth about what that is and what it looks like within a church. But here Paul is putting forward the seriousness of sin and saying, a true apostolic church battles sinful disposition. A true Christian is serious about sin. No matter how seemingly small and no matter how seemingly great. This is what I love about Paul. Did you notice the list? There's two different lists here. And probably the list in verse 21 jumped out as Paul was saying that uh, he's hoped that people have repented of moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Those are often lists of sins that we see are very serious. But do you hear the other list of sins that he gave that he hopes the church isn't finding itself in in verse 20? He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, you may not, uh, there, there may be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, Selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And Paul lays this out and says, guys, these are the things that I hope aren't among you, these sins. He, in essence, just described what social media is. And he says, it, it shouldn't be the case. I'm worried that I'm going to come and that's going to be here among you. They are a seemingly unremarkable list of sins. And the danger, I think, sometimes for us, there's a, a late author named Jerry Bridges whom I love. He wrote a book called Respectable Sins. What an interesting name for a book. And goes through and lists sins that we as uh, modern Christians have kind of just become okay with. They're, respect, they're the respectable ones. These over here are the sins we don't deal with, but these, it's not that big of a deal. And Paul lists out some fairly respectable sins, I think, in the church here in the 21st century in verse 20. But friends, these aren't sins to be justified by being not that big of a deal or to be explained away through a personality test. Say, well, listen, I, I'm an Enneagram One. I know that I'm arrogant, but I'm also always right. So what am I supposed to do about that? Friends, Paul is saying that we should take these things seriously. Here in this verse is a list of actions and attitudes that God saw serious enough to die for because if they were left undealt with, they would sentence each of us to an eternity in hell separated from God. And Paul is telling the church in Corinth to treat them with the same kind of severity as God does. He says, don't bat an eye at them. Jealousy, angry outbursts. Except in a car? No, Paul doesn't include that caveat in there. Any angry outbursts, jealousy, gossip, slander, quarreling. 
Now, quarreling, what does that mean? Does that mean just disagreeing? What does it really mean to quarrel? Well, no, it doesn't mean that we have to agree all the time. There's a way to disagree and not quarrel. There's a way to debate and not quarrel. There's a way to argue and not quarrel. Quarrel has a different flavor to it altogether. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Charlotte, gave 12 marks of a quarrelsome person. I just want to read through them quickly to help get a shape and a flavor of what it means to be quarreling. He said, you might be a quarrelsome person if you defend every conviction with the same degree of intensity. If you are quick to speak and slow to listen. If your only model for ministry and faithfulness is the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or the only Jesus you like is a Jesus who cleared the money chargers from the temple. If you are incapable of seeing nuances and you do not believe in qualifying statements. If you never give the benefit of the doubt. If you have no unarticulated opinions. If everyone knows everything that you believe all the time. If your first instinct is to criticize and your last instinct is to encourage. If you are unable to sympathize with your opponents, if you have a small grid and everything fits into it, meaning that every problem you see is a blank problem, oh, it is a social justice issue, it is everything as it relates to the regulative principle, everything is Obama's fault, everything is about Trump, well, now everything is about Biden, well, it's all about feminists or the patriarchy or how my parents messed up my life. DeYoung says that when you have When all you have is a hammer, the rest of the world looks like a nail. If you derive a sense of satisfaction and spiritual safety and feeling constantly rejected, if you're always in the trenches with hand grenades strapped to your chest, and if you have never changed your mind, are some marks that you are quarrelsome. And Paul says that is not to be named in the church. Paul is worried he'll show up in Corinth and that will be an attitude that has spread. And friends, I'm concerned that we've become far too content with quarreling in the church. Listen, Satan may not attack you with the obvious sins of verse 21, but he is just as happy to have you trapped in the seeming minor sins of verse 20. Screwtape Letters is an incredible book written by C.S. Lewis. And the, the book is written from the perspective of a senior demon to his uh, nephew demon and giving him advice on how to tempt Christians and uh, have Christians stumble and fall within this world. So it's Wormwood and Screwtape. Screwtape is the uncle and he writes to Wormwood, his nephew. In one of the chapters, he writes about how to get Christians to be able to stumble, how to get them to fall. And in his letter to his nephew, he says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Friends, we need to watch out for the trap of sin in verse 20 because it is real and it is lurking. To update this a little bit, screw tape letters, you may say it this way, that an affair is no better than quarreling about politics and pandemics if quarreling can do the trick. Friends, we are in a season right in the middle of it that is ripe for division in the church. And that doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. 
So fight against the sin of quarreling and arrogance for the sake of unity within the church and her witness to the gospel of Christ. It's worth it. Have convictions. Disagree with others. Disagree with others in this church. But disagree differently than the world does. Don't quarrel. Don't become arrogant. And don't look down on the person who has come to a different conclusion than you. Fight against these sins as Paul tells the church in Corinth to fight against them. May we have the same perspective. May we be marked as an apostolic church that is serious about sin and battles a sinful disposition. But finally, an apostolic church displays a Christ-like love. So Paul, again, is saying, this is what marks an apostolic ministry. I had signs that authenticated my message. I'm serious about sin and not just swiping it away because holiness matters. And here, right in the middle, Paul says, you want to know one of the greatest marks that I'm an apostle? It's that I love you. And one of the things that should mark any apostolic church is love. An apostolic church displays a Christ-like love. We see this in chapter 12, verses 13 through 19. Paul writes to them, and he says, Listen, in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. You hear, again, Paul is maybe a little fed up at this point with the church in Corinth because the accusations against him were that Paul didn't charge money to preach the gospel, and these super apostles did, and the super apostles are saying, hey, that makes us legit and Paul an idiot. You shouldn't believe him because he's not charging you any money. What kind of ministry does he have where it's free? Free 99, unless you're going to get what you pay for with Paul. And Paul's saying, guys, are you serious? That's like the, the, the weirdest complaint against a preacher I've ever heard. Like, you're mad at me because I didn't charge you money? Because I didn't burden you? Well, forgive me for this wrong. I'm so sorry that this is what I did. Verse 14, he continues, says, Look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. I'm not going to burden you since I'm not seeking what is yours but you. 16, he says, Now granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Paul's saying, Listen, I didn't burden you, I didn't charge because I'm so sly. Right Here's what the super apostles were saying. Listen, Paul's not charging you so you can trust him, but remember that huge collection that he wants for the saints in Jerusalem from chapters 8 and 9? He wants to get this huge collection of money to give to them. No, Paul isn't charging you to gain your trust, and then he's going to go and skim some off the top for his own purposes. That's what these super apostles are claiming against Paul. Paul received these false accusations and is here having to deal with them. He says, listen, I didn't take you in by deceit. Verse 17, did I take advantage of you by any of those that I sent you? He said, remember, I sent Titus and the brother with him to make sure I wasn't the one taking the collection in chapter 8. He set up those things around him so that he would be free from those accusations, to have that administration that protected his ministry. He says, we've walked in the same footsteps. But do you notice there's three phrases throughout these verses that help give a flavor for what kind of love Paul has for them. And we know he's talking about love because he says it right there in verse 15. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul's talking about his love for this church. But how is that love defined? And what's the flavor of that love? Because here's again another, I think, issue with our culture today is I think our culture has hijacked the word love. When I say love, what do you think of? What pops into your head? Almost immediately, we run to romantic love. 
Oh, the love that I have for a boyfriend, for a girlfriend, for a spouse. Then it maybe goes beyond extension to love that we have for those that are close to us, our children, parents, grandparents, cousins. And then maybe it creeps out, but I can almost guarantee this wasn't your first thought. Well, I love my neighbor. I love the person that lives across the street from me. I love my church members. I love God. More than likely, when we ask what love is, those aren't the things that first pop into our head. And our culture, whether it's through movies, media, however it's been done, it's been done that when we think of love, we think of this romantic love, this butterflies-in-your-stomach kind of love, like, oh, our pinkies accidentally touched and now I don't know what to do kind of love. And friends, the Bible talks about love in a much different way. Sure, that's, that's in essence a part of what love is, but there is a much bigger picture of love that we see from God himself. And Paul here is saying that by extension now is playing itself out and how he loves this church. So what then is love? How would we define it? How can we see what the essence of it is? Because it's opposite to what this culture has often defined it as. I think a, a great way to look at how you think about love is through music. You look at popular songs that have been written, and they'll give you a heartbeat and a barometer for what the culture believes. And Michael Jackson, in the 90s, wrote the song, The Way You Make Me Feel. And in it, he talks about, I like the feeling you're giving me. Just hold me, baby, and I'm in ecstasy. Oh, I'll be working from 9 to 5 to buy you things to keep you by my side. I never felt so in love before. Just promise me, baby, you'll, leave, you'll love me forevermore. I swear I'm keeping you satisfied because you're the one for me, the way you make me feel. You want me to moonwalk right now? It's not going to happen. We get a glimpse into what love is seen. Oh, it's love. It's romantic love, and it's primarily based on what the person has to offer me. Oh, the way that you make me feel. Friends, the message of a cultural love isn't even about loving another person. It's about loving what that other person can do for you. Underneath it all is still ourselves. It's selfish. I love you because of how you make me feel. Is that what biblical love is? Well, Paul shows us in three phrases to give us a better picture of what biblical love actually looks like. In verse 14, he says this, he says, I will not burden you since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. There's one phrase. Paul says, listen, I don't want what you can give me. I want you. I'm not after what you may have that benefits me. I'm after you. I want you. I'm coming for you and your heart. There's one sense that we see. Then in verse 15, he puts it this way. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. Paul says, so not only am I not after what benefits me, but I want to actually empty myself. I want to spend and be spent for you. And last, in verse 19, he says, everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Those three phrases, Paul gives us three different aspects of what biblical love looks like. First, we see that it aims at the person and not what the person can do for you. True love aims at the person and not what the person can do for you. Second, we see that true love joyfully empties itself to spend and to be spent. Joyfully empties itself. 
And then third, true love intentionally looks to do good to others. Everything is for building you up. This is the nature that we see of what true love looks like here in this passage. It aims at the person and not what the person can do for you. And friends, this goes outside of just even romantic relationships, but even within our friendships, how often are we tempted to feel this way? So Paul's writing them saying, listen, I don't want your money, I want you. But goodness, for us, how much does that infect the way that we either view our spouses, our family, or our friends? Saying, hey, listen, I'll only hang out with you if I enjoy hanging out with you. I'll only open my life up to you if there's something that you can do for me. Either you make me laugh or I enjoy being around you or we both like watching Marvel movies or whatever it may be, that there is something that you can offer me socially. Or we say, hey, listen, I'm only going to put time into building a relationship in my job if that relationship can help me move up the ladder. Those are the lenses in which we view who the people are. This guy over here that can't do anything for me, I'm not going to go waste my time on him. I've got to strategically invest my time in ways for me to be able to move up. Or even then within our communities, the same things. And we'll open up our lives to develop relationships with people that help us climb the social ladder. And our love and our friendships aren't aimed at a person. They're aimed at what a person can do for us. And Paul says, nope, upside down. Biblical love isn't aimed for what your stuff is. It aims at what your heart is. Not yours, but you. Paul says, I will give myself to you, not because of anything that you can give to me. Paul didn't come to take from them. He came to give to them, not to fill his pockets, but to empty himself. And it's here that Paul shows one of the marks of his apostleship and marks of any true apostolic church is love, aiming at the person and not just what the person can do for you. But second, the second thing we see about what love is, is it joyfully empties itself. Paul says, I came to spend and to be spent for you. Because what a beautiful picture and description of ministry and of the Christian life. Do we view our lives that way? How can we spend ourselves and be spent for others? I'll be honest, there's a growing trend, especially within churches, to be able to focus on self-care. Now, depending on how you define that, I think it's helpful. But if you define it in a way that says, I'm going to remove myself from anything that empties me, I want to make sure I never get empty. I want to make sure I'm always full, doing the things that I enjoy doing, the things that I find restful. That's my self-care. Friends, if that's your definition of self-care, I'm going to be honest. It's the opposite of the Christian life. Jesus says, carry your cross. Take it up and follow me. Paul says, here's my perspective. I want to spend myself, and I want to be Spent. Now, it doesn't mean you just run yourself into the ground. There's ways in which you fill yourself up, but it's different than what the world might say. And so if this becomes our perspective, to spend and be spent, friends, how different does this change our relationships? How does this transform our relationships across the board if we look to joyfully empty ourselves to those around us? If that becomes our perspective. I mean, just think about it here in church, where if you walk in the doors and your radar, the lens that you look through, looks around and goes, okay, how can I spend myself today for the sake of someone else? What can I do to help someone else? What has God given me so that I can then bless someone else? Rather than walking in and going, okay, what do I want today? What is most comfortable? What is easiest? Because if that was our perspective here, 
And this is an incredible invitation into ministry that Paul is giving us. Same invitation that Jesus gave his disciples. To go and spend yourself for loving other people. That's why serving here is an incredible opportunity to do this. There's a number of ways to serve in different ministry teams we have. With our worship and production team, connections, holding open doors, or handing out bulletins. And Grove Kids being able to be in classrooms and helping uh, children learn about who Jesus is in age-appropriate uh, mediums. With our ops team set up and tear down, which isn't doing as much now, but it is still needed. Friends, I know that those things are not just easy. It's not comfortable. Especially when we're at Grassy Lake Elementary School. People are getting up there at 7 o'clock to unload a trailer. And listen, in August, that's a, a, a sauna in real life there in that trailer in the back of the elementary school. It is not comfortable. So why in the world would someone do it? Well, because we need a position filled and we need people to do it in order to do a job. No. Listen, if that's our perspective of serving, then we've missed how the Bible talks about serving. It's an invitation into ministry to be able to spend ourselves for the sake of others. Serving within the church isn't an obligation of membership, but an opportunity for ministry. To be able to live our lives like Jesus has. And it doesn't matter if it's handing out a bulletin, running slides in the nursery. Friends, they are tangible expressions of how to spend ourselves and be spent for the sake of the church. So Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses my life, his life for my sake will find it. But if our definition of serving ends within the walls of this church, then we have too small of a definition of what it means to serve and what it means to love. Goodness, it goes far beyond that, not just at our church, but into your relationships. Think if this was your perspective in your marriage all the time. How can I spend myself for the sake of my spouse? If this was your perspective in parenting, how can I spend myself for the sake of my kids? If this is your relationship within your job, how can I spend myself for the sake of my coworkers? If this was your relationship in your class or on your football team, what can I do to be able to help and spend myself for the sake of those around me? And then you begin to try to outdo serving and loving one another. If that becomes the perspective, if this is the question that we ask, okay, if I was someone else, what would I want someone to do for me? Asking that question. If I was someone else, if I was this person, what would I want them to do for me? And then when you've answered that, you go, I will then do that thing for them. This week, in, if, if you're married, in your jobs, on your football team, in your classes, wherever it might be, ask yourself that question. Find someone and say, if I was them, what would I want someone to do for me? And then you go and do that thing. Spend yourself and be spent. Joyfully empty yourself for the sake of others. That is part of the nature and flavor of what biblical love is. And then also we see that it tries not just to joyfully empty itself, but also intentionally look to do good to others. Paul says everything is for building you up. Everything is for the sake of you growing, for you to be blessed. We've done all of it. We've emptied ourselves for your sake. And so again, trying to intentionally and be strategic about how you can bless other people. Think about it. Plan. Be creative. Be strategic in ways to be able to do intentional good for other people both physical and spiritual, to be able to spend yourself and be spent, to be able to build others up, to be able to look not to yourself, but to look to those around you, to be able to love. 
And that shows us a bit of flavor of what that love looks like. Well, we see not only Paul's command to love like this, but friends, it flows from the very heart of Jesus himself because this is the way that Jesus has loved us. So Paul isn't just saying, here are commands to do. Paul is saying, you're supposed to empty yourself. You want to know how you're going to be filled? It's through the love that God has for you through Jesus because Jesus aimed at you and not what you could do for him. Praise God that God didn't say, okay, all you guys, good luck, work really hard. The people that can offer me the most, those are the people that are going to be on my team. You, you're impressive. You, you've got a lot to offer. You, you come a high, you've come from a high-class family. I'll take you as well. And God, like a kid on a playground choosing the best players for his team, how burdensome and impossible does that feel? Well, friends, that is the opposite of how God has chosen those whom he loves. In fact, we get to see behind the scenes in Deuteronomy 7 exactly how it happened. In verses 7 and 8, Moses says that it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and he chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You hear what he's saying? He's talking about Israel. He's saying, listen, it's not because you were the most in number that God set his love on you. You were actually the fewest. Moses saying, listen, it wasn't because you had the best leg for kickball. You're, you're the one that has never played before in your life, has never been able to run a sprint in your life. That's who you are, Israel. Yet God has chosen to set his love on you and love you. Why? Why would God do it? Verse 8, because the Lord loves you. The Lord loves you because he loves you. If you stop and sit on the weight of that sentence, there is so much safety and security that's there. God doesn't love you because of what you can do for him. He loves you because he loves you. And that is set. It is fixed. If you've turned and trusted in him, his love will not let you go. Because it was not founded on something that you could do for him. It was founded on his character and his heart. It was an overflow of who he is. He is love. God is not after what you can do for him. He is after you. And we see then that led him to joyfully empty himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And when Jesus came, what did he do? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. And showing us practically what this means is he washed his disciples' feet, taking off his robe, taking off his reputation, kneeling down and doing the most uh, uh, menial task, the lowest task a servant could do to wash his disciples' feet, to display the way that he loves us. And then he gets up and he says, now the way that I've loved you, you love one another. Empty yourself for one another because this is the love that I have for you. And we see that Jesus intentionally looked to do good to others. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the heart of God and how he's loved you in the most surprising of ways? The ways it's different than how we might define love. But it's what Paul says, how he loves this church, and it's how it should mark any apostolic church to love this way. What if these things clearly marked us as a church? A firm grasp on an authenticated message, a deadly serious about sin and holiness, and a joyful display of Christ-like love. We may be unimpressive to our culture, 
We may not make the headlines, but I believe that if we do these three things, we will make a dent in eternity. Guard the good deposit, this message of grace that has been given to you. Fight sin and strive for holiness. And friends, love others just like Jesus has loved you. Let's pray. God, we are so amazed at your love. God, you love so differently than us. God, would your love get deep into our hearts and begin to shape how it is we view others, how it is we love others, how it is we act towards others. God, that we would love others just as you have loved us. God, help us to be able to be so filled with your love and the immeasurable riches of your grace that we can then go and empty ourselves for their sake to be able to glorify you, to love you, and to love others, to obey the great commandment that you've given us. God, help us be a church marked by that. We pray all this in your beautiful son's name. Amen.